Kassat Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Kassat Conversations. I am your host, Heather Haslam. This season, we will explore the impact of trauma on those who work in human services. You'll hear from researchers, authors, and people with lived experience. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Sam Quinones. Sam is a journalist, storyteller, and author of three acclaimed books of narrative nonfiction. Welcome, Sam. We're happy to have you here today. Well, it's great to be here, Heather. Thank you for for inviting me. Appreciate it. So as we dive in, please share with us about yourself and how you came to write your most recent book, The Least of Us. Yeah, The Least of Us... um is about several things. Um, the subtitle is the true tale of America, true tales of America and hope in the time of fentanyl and meth. It really grew out of my previous book, which was uh, Dreamland, which was about which was a history of the uh, opioid epidemic, beginning with uh, widespread, I would say, aggressive, sometimes wanton, perhaps is the proper term, uh, prescribing of opioid painkillers branded ones we all know, Vicodin, Percocet, Oxycontin, et cetera, et cetera, many. Um, and how that then, uh, and, and that was based on the idea uh, promoted by drug companies and pushed on doctors that these pills were now virtually non-addictive when used to treat pain, if you were patient in pain. And that then led to widespread addiction, in fact, because that didn't prove to be uh, true. And um, and then uh, that led to a, a big surge in uh, among some of those folks in, in heroin addiction and the Mexican trafficking world getting involved and understanding that we were in the process in the United States creating this brand new market that they could very, very easily take advantage of, which they did. And um, as I wrote that book, I was finding that uh, um, in 2013 and 14, there was very difficult uh, to write that book principally because the, 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 the families involved, people who had loved ones who were addicted to these pills and then to heroin, uh, were very reluctant to come forward, very unwilling to talk about it publicly. You know, there was this nationwide silence, and that was really one of the reasons it spread so, so completely from coast to coast. Doctors were everywhere, of course, but it was also because there was just this real silence. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was like the early days of the AIDS epidemic when all the obituaries said, cancer and don't put HIV in my son's obituary, that kind of thing. And you found that as well. And so I found it very difficult. Then the book comes out in 2015, Dreamland comes out in 2015, and I just watched everything change. It was a remarkable thing to live through because I had lived through it. And you found um, all across the country, first of all, I began to get all these speaking engagements to come speak, which I did not expect. When I was writing Dreamland, I was certain the book was going to just fade away because no one wanted to talk about it. It was this taboo subject. And suddenly people began to come out of the shadows into the light. And this affected a lot of things, media coverage, uh, political debate and, and discussion, pr budget priorities. And you began to see it really expand. You know, When I was uh, 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 writing Dreamland, there were three lawsuits against drug companies. Within a few years of Dreamland, there was 3,000, 2,600, 3,000 eventually. Uh, no one, when I was writing the book, very few people knew what naloxone was or how to pronounce it correctly. Uh, no one really knew what an opioid, the term opioid 
meant. And so I put in the subtitle to Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, because that was a word that people understood. I knew that. And so I watched all that change. It was a remarkable thing. But my, my publisher wanted me then to write another book, began pushing very quickly. Hey, we need another book. And I'm like, first of all, I was exhausted. It was a major story. I knew this was a huge story. It was about what we had done to community, how we had shredded community in America and all that kind of stuff. It was about how we wanted convenient answers to very complicated problems like how to treat pain. Well, the convenient magic answer was one pill for every human being, right? But I still was exhausted. And I have to say, sheepishly, that I was thinking old school, like an old school crime reporter, which in part is what I am. And I just thought to myself, what could be worse than heroin. I mean, I wrote about heroin. What's worse than heroin? Well, well, as I began to do these speaking engagements over the next several years, 2016, 17, 18, 19, up until the pandemic, I, you know, obviously found out what was what was worse than heroin, and that was fentanyl and the synthetic drug revolution that very much like the opioid revolution in American medicine, the synthetic drug revolution has taken place down in the Mexican trafficking world uh, on the western side of, of, uh, of, of Mexico, in which they have discovered um, gradually more and more people, and they uh, understand that synthetics are in every way a better proposition if you're a trafficker. They're more, they're easy, you don't need land, you don't need rain, you don't need sunlight, you just make all these things in a lab, it's all chemical based. You only need shipping ports to get access to the the chemical markets uh, uh, in China and India and various places around the world, which they have. They have two major shipping ports right there. And I began to see that, uh, and it, it occurred to me that we were now in a new world, and we really are. Synthetic drugs change everything about drugs, about manufacturing, smuggling, profit, use, addiction, treatment. There almost is really nothing that remains um, uh, 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 the same. And, and, uh, and there was this, this revolution really took place. And now what has happened is that they've really covered the country in, in an unprecedented way. No, no one source has ever done this before. Covered the country with not one but two drugs, methamphetamine and, and fentanyl. And I watched this kind of proceed as, my, as I was coming to the idea that I need to write another book. And that became part of my focus, as well as the focus being on um, the 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 world of uh, the toxic soup that you and I and everyone else lives in uh, constantly of addictive, legal and addictive substances and products that are massively marketed at us. And, and lately, the most prevalent one, if you watch sports at all, are gambling apps just everywhere. But, you know, sugar, porno, uh, <laughs> video games, social media and, self and smartphones, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, fast food, soda, et cetera, et cetera. And to me, this was like a fascinating way of conceiving what was going on because the Sinaloa drug cartel, as well as the purveyors of all those products I just mentioned, were basically interested in the same thing, which was to picking away, plucking at our brain chemistry to get us to follow those reward pathways, those impulses to buy, to use their products. And they were doing so constantly. Um, with a lot of know-how and a lot of money involved. And, and, and to me, that felt like an amazing idea and that we were up against a seer an array of forces that which our brains are really not prepared to deal with, you know, because they evolved uh, millions of years ago, really. And so 
as part of that, I began to ask myself, what was the, what is the, the what, what, how can we defend ourselves? What am I to say as a journalist? Uh, I'm not a preacher. What am I to say? So I began to write, I, I came to think that the story was really about the way to defeat this or the way the best defense that we had was really what we always have had in our brains, which is this impulse towards community, towards being around other people. Only in the United States, we have turned away from that. Last 40 years, we've done so much to shred community, thinking we don't need it. It's too messy. Other people drive us nuts. We want to be alone and all that. And it's really been uh, one of the symptoms of that, I think, has been, um, well, there's a lot of symptoms. There's suicide. There's isolation. There's friendlessness. There's loneliness. I believe that the the, the addiction to all manner of stuff is, uh, including meth and fentanyl, are, are kind of symptoms uh, of that. And so the idea became to write stories about people who were doing, in the smallest, least sexy way, we're, we're doing what they could to help repair community in America. And that's what became half the book. So it was part of, half the book was, was this fentanyl and meth and, and the neuroscience of how, how you know, sugar works and addiction, addiction works, but then also stories of how people in the smallest way, because I did not want anybody who thought he was cha- saving the world. We, I need, we think we need to get away from that as a, as a country. That is, brings all kinds of un, unintended consequences. And so my feeling was like half this book is really about these stories of these folks who are just in the, in the smallest, uh, unnoticed, uh, uh, non-sexy way, just doing what they can to make their little corner of the world a little bit better place. So that is a very long-winded explanation of how I came to uh, write uh, The Least of Us. I'm curious how you, um, it sounds like you wrote this book during COVID, and I'm curious if you saw um, ways that COVID impacted? I wrote half the book during COVID. Um, as I said, I was doing all these speech, speak, speaking engagements all over the country. And then about, uh, and I had about, for 2020, I had maybe another good number. I can't remember how many, but but certainly a good number. And, um, and by March, they were all gone. They were all just evaporated, March 2020. And so, uh, you know, it was such a damaging thing for the country, so many families. I will say, however, for me, it was actually a benefit um, I just sat in my garage office and wrote for about 14 months straight. I finished the book. It was, it was, it was, I was well into it, but it needed a lot more work still. And so I finished it. And I would say that, yes, it, it was, it was, if you think about it, COVID was really returning us to this, to this, the status quo that really got us into this in the sense that it, it created a whole lot of uh, isolation, a, a whole lot of job loss too. And a lot of just separation from pe- other people. All these twelve-step meetings now had to be on Zoom, which Zoom is a nice, nice, nice technology, but it does not really su- uh, uh, substitute for real human face-to-face interaction uh, uh, at all. And and so um, you begin to see that it COVID happens. It is a, the the great tra- one of the great tragedies of the COVID pandemic that it comes along just as what I was talking about earlier has happened already. And that is by 2019, you see the trafficking world of Mexico essentially has covered the entire country with fentanyl and methamphetamine. The final blow in that, I think, is is that methamphetamine, the meth that they're making out of Mexico, um, made it all the way up to New England, which really never had any methamphetamine of any sustained quantities uh, um, to speak of ever. And now it now it certainly now it certainly does covering the entire country with meth and dropping the price by eighty percent. And meanwhile, fentanyl is coming 
it starts in like the Midwest and the opioid states, so to speak. And it goes east and west, and by 2018-19, it's fully all over, uh, by 2019, it's all over California. So what you see is, as this great push towards, to, to isolate because we have to stop this horrible pandemic, the drugs have changed and have become these extraordinarily deadly things, and, and mind-tangling things like methamphetamine is uh, uh, t today. And so... To me, that that was really that those two things happening together is what uh, what pushed us to these um, uh, uh, horrible new record overdose uh, uh, tallies that we're seeing and probably going to see for 2021 and, and 22 as well. You know, so all of that is kind of um, the the way in which COVID really um, just brutalized the country. It was a sad thing too because I really thought. By 2019, I was so impressed with the progress that had been made towards rethinking a lot of things. Now everybody knew how to pronounce naloxone. Now it was very, very available. Now medical assisted treatment was, was becoming more accepted. Um, now people were moving out of the shadows into the light, which was I can tell you was absolutely not the case when I was writing Dreamland in 2013 and 14, I was stunned by it. all those lawsuits, all that money being dislodged. Now you see CVS and Walgreens, 5 billion here, 5 billion there. You see all these there's, um, pharmaceutical distributors and companies like, like Purdue, you know, I'm going to pay all this money. I never, ever, ever thought any of that was possible when I was writing Dreamland because it, there was no movement. The, the folks who were, who were affected by it were made awful plaintiffs they were, you know, in and out of jail, stealing their kids' Christmas presents, you know, for dope and this kind of thing. There was, there was no feeling like this was was a, a great um, that this would would lend us or, or result in an, a, a vast accountability on the part of some of these very, very, very powerful corporations. And yet, that's exactly what's happened. I'm stunned and very gratified and very, very uh, feel very uh, kind of vindicated. I think, in, in a large part because I know what it was like before when I was writing the book. I really love how you talk about moving out of the shadows into the light. And it sounds like your first book, Dreamland, had such an awareness raising, consciousness raising for the United States. Um, and I'm curious to see how this new one will kind of revolutionize how we think about addiction. I think what's happened is, that um, this book is coming out just as COVID is retreating. And a lot of what had happened in 2019 wasn't always apparent to people. And then 2020, 21, we're all about COVID. And that was the discussion and all the, the newspaper and the media uh, coverage was all about that. And now you see COVID kind of retreat last many months. And then now people are understanding what, what, has, what this opioid thing has kind of morphed into. And it's it's become a major issue for so many communities. I would say too, it's very connected to the homelessness and the homeless encampments that you are seeing in many cities across the country and small towns as well. I would say, um, I would say a, a big factor in all that is methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is a, a becoming coming out of Mexico. One of the things the the book, the least of us um, broke, I think, was the fact that this methamphetamine was no longer kind of a party drug once you want to be around other people. Um, it was a, a drug that created um, a, a very solitary uh, sense and also, uh, most of all, 
um, very rapid onset of symptoms of schizophrenia, intense paranoia, intense delusions, um, and, a, and a feeling like you don't want to be around other people. And so therefore, um, people would very quickly become homeless when they're on this meth, and they would then not want to be in a homeless shelter. And the tent encampment is kind of a perfect place then for people who are on this, this meth, because it's you can hide from the world in your little tent pod, but you're also around other people who are doing the drug, and so you kind of feel in, engaged and, and encouraged, and, and also get uh, the, the drug is available through those, through those folks. And so you're seeing tent encampments, homeless, the shape of homelessness has, ta- has changed. Uh, the form it takes has changed in America since this meth began really covering the country uh, when it when it really entered the United States in enormous quantities, beginning about roughly say 2012, 13, 14 on the West Coast, and then pushing east to 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 New England uh, about 2019, you're seeing the same kind of tent encampments that you saw in Skid Row in Los Angeles, which is kind of where a lot of this starts. And meth is really huge in that that area. You're seeing those same tent encampments in rural Indiana. You're seeing them in Portland. You're seeing them. In, you were seeing them in Boston until they cleared them away. This kind of thing, and so. Um, all of that is, um, part of what I think the least of us is trying to talk about. Um, these are some of the, the very, very dire and sinister forces that we're, we're kind of facing as a, as a culture. Yeah. And I want to spend a little time, um, really hearing your perspective on these legal addictive substances too. Um, I think of course the fentanyl and the meth are really important. It, I mean, honestly, as we talk about it, it just horrifies and scares me thinking about what's on the streets and yes. the repercussions of that. Um, but I also think it's important to acknowledge these legal substances and kind of the similarities that are happening in the brain. Oh, oh, I would say that that's the fascinating thing. Um, one of the p- chapters in my book, um, I was just blown away by this. There's this wonderful neuroscientist who studies the, the addictive properties of food, Nicole, Nicola Vena at, um, at Princeton. And she was very, very generous with her time and, and, and really a, a, a brilliant, a brilliant uh, person and, and very, very good at explaining to, to laymen like myself um, uh, these very complicated. And, and anyway, early on, in, as, she, as they, were, they were some of the first um, um, experiments uh, regarding the ex, uh, the uh, scientific experiments establishing the addictive properties of sugar were done at the Princeton lab, which with the, which were where she was then a graduate student many years in the early two thousands, and back then it was just in the basement of the neuro of the psychology department. Now you know neurosciences have blossomed blossomed into this standalone thing, and there's a big building now, the Neuroscience Institute at Princeton, and so on. And you got these different buildings all over Vanderbilt, various places, you know. Um, anyway, back then that was not the case. They were doing their own little research in the basement of the of the of the psychology department, and they did a study on what they asked themselves: What would the effect be if we gave naloxone to rats that were dependent on sugar? Okay, would they experience the same? Demonstrate the same symptoms of withdrawal? Withdrawal. Sorry, that that. Um, we associate with rats when they're withdrawing from other drugs. And so they got these rats dependent on sugar uh, for about a a month or two, I think, Uh, 10 hours, 12 hours a day of sugar water, you know, that kind of thing. And then they gave, they did this experiment a couple of times. They gave these rats um, uh, naloxone. And sure enough, they went through the same withdrawals. Rats apparently, according to Nicole, 
have these uh, symptoms, you can very easily tell when they're under a lot of stress, like with withdrawal, they, they begin to, they, a, a teeth chatter, they do a lot of like manic grooming, uh, they do the wet dog shaking, you know, rapid, rapid shaking, this kind of thing. And they were just blown away that this was the same ex the reaction they had when they were addicted to um, uh, other drugs, heroin in, uh, in particular. And so um, it, it, it led to the idea that sugar is hitting the same reward pathways and opioid uh, 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 receptors as um, as is heroin and opioids and in, in every opioid in, it does in, in, in general, you know. And it, it just was part of this establishing that there are addictive properties to these foods. And granted, they don't have the same euphoric effect as drugs of abuse, which are like a nuclear bomb on your, you know, reward pathways. But they do hit the same places and you can understand how addictive they are then by, by that. So th that was... Part of my, I just, I just love that experiment, man. You just, you're, you're, you're addicting these rats, and then all of a sudden, they, they go into withdrawal just like anybody withdrawing from heroin or another opioid, you know. So, um, I, I think that is, that is, um, that became like this part of the book that I thought, you know, that'd be interesting to talk about, and it became kind of my obsession after a while. And I included five full chapters on it, and, and the, the, the neuroscientists I was able to talk to were really helpful and brilliant, brilliant folks, and I'm in awe of these folks, and it's just such a wonderful time for neuroscience research now. But it does get back to the whole idea that this is a continuum. It's a really, you know, you got this panorama of people, the the Facebook software engineer, the gambling casino designer, the pornographer, the, the video game manufacturer, the soda manufacturer, and at the end out there is the Sinaloa drug cartel, right? It's a, you know, it's, they're all about the same idea. They're all plucking away at our brain chemistry. And I have found that once you operate in that way, once you operate with that understanding, you all of a sudden are kind of, you can be a freeborn American again. That's how I feel. Like you can make these choices that say, okay, I'm not going to buy this crud at the supermarket. I'm not going to gamble. I'm not, you, can under, you can understand, I am going to defeat what they are trying to do to my brain chemistry. I'm going to go exercise. I'm going to walk away from this, this junk. I'm going to buy plant-based food. You know, this, and this is what I've been doing. Um, I, I, it kind of rethought, I kind of rethought a, a certain things in my life that, to get away from the 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 stuff that I know I can understand now is what it's doing to my brain chemistry, and I try to do what I can to 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 uh, uh, defeat it. And exercise is probably the most important one of all. You know, I I've read her research before, and I've been really interested in the sugar piece for a long time. Yes, and something that struck me that I think about often is like in treatment centers or different places, the crap that we feed people while they're in treatment um, yes. just blows my mind. Or the crap that we give people of low socioeconomic status and we're making them sicker uh, by giving it to them. And it just continually blows my mind and As it does me. mine. It, it, it's great of you to bring that up. I think it's, I was in a, I, I never forget, once I was doing this part of the book, I would think back a lot to a, 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 a treatment center I wandered into. I can't remember even how now. I think it was Anaheim in Orange County, California. And there were a bunch of guys sitting around on a sunny afternoon, by the way, uh, and, and not doing drugs, but they were eating, they were drinking Pepsis. 
they were eating like Doritos or some stuff. There was a pizza box there and uh, they were drinking like sodas, Pepsi or monster drinks or whatever the heck it was, you know? And I was thinking, I'm not sure Now this was long. This was one just shortly after. I mean, it might've been even while I was writing Dreamland. Um, I thought to myself, I don't think that's a healthy way of recovering from drugs. You know, I'm amazed that, as you say, that there is not far more focus placed on two things in, in, drug, in, in treatment centers, nutrition and exercise. Both of those things are part of your brain healing. Feeding it junk food and cigarettes is simply, I don't know, it seems to me like counterproductive. You know what I mean? And I would also say that it's an outrage that we subsidize as a government the production of corn, uh, high fructose corn syrup, which is so prevalent in so many foods and used to kind of, uh, you know, prod you to eat more because it, it subdues your, your feelings of satiation a little bit, apparently. So all of that to me, I mean, why we can't subsidize vegetable growing, I, 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 I simply don't get, you know. Um, but, but to me, that's, that's, yes, again, a kind of a, how we developed this, this in the last 40, 50 years and more probably, um, a, a culture where we just kind of get away from what really sustains the human being and, 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 and bows down to substances and, and, and forces that just would, would beat us up for, for money. Mm-hmm. That just continue to make us sicker, both mentally and yes, physically. Yes, exactly. Exactly, right. Um, it makes me think of, I used to do a lot of work in chronic disease and um, working with older adults. And I was working with a senior living complex, um, trying to get college students in there to create a community garden. And they had tons of land. And... Um, so I proposed it to the person who leads this organization. And I will never forget that she's like, no, we can't do that. The seniors might fight over the fruits and vegetables. <laughs> it's just like, if people are fighting over fruits and vegetables, that is a fantastic problem to have. Rather than being isolated in their apartments, um, you know, the list goes on. So I think we have a lot of work in shifting the way that we think about. Oh yeah, and I think it it what right now it it comes down to individual choice. And I began to feel that the opioid epidemic was about nasty drug marketing and was about heroin trafficking and all that kind of stuff. But it was also it comes down to always our own individual choice. You do not have to buy that stuff. You can find other ways of of eating uh, healthy, and I believe cheaply too, frankly far more so than, than buying junk food and whatever is just in the center part of the grocery store, you know. Um, I, I do believe that, and I believe that, that um, uh, you know, it, it, we do need exercise, and, and exercise and nutrition, I just think, have to be part of every uh, drug treatment protocol, you know. Yeah, I agree. I do love that just made me think in your book, you have a line where you talk about supply reduction is the best harm reduction. And uh, I just, that really resonated for me. I feel that that is what, what um, frequently what happens. Um, you know, um, the first time that the um, Sinaloa drug cartel figured out what fentanyl was, was in 2006. It's a story I tell in the book about this underground chemist that was in the United States, a Mexican guy. It was, you know, grew up in the United States and became a fentanyl cook. 
He went to prison for a lot of years, became a better fentanyl cook, was deported, and the Sinaloa drug cartel hires him. Um, he turns them on into fentanyl. They did not know what fentanyl was in Mexico until he uh, shows them that this is a synthetic heroin. They no longer need to grow poppies under the sun, uh, you know, with irrigation and all that. And... Um, and he begins to uh, make this fentanyl, and they begin to ship it. This one element, it was one part of the Sinaloa drug cartel, uh, is funding this, and they send the, the, his fentanyl up to Chicago. And from there, it makes its way also to Detroit, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Cleveland, maybe, I think. And through that period, from uh, fall of 2005 to this April of 2006, when his lab was busted in Mexico and he was put in prison again, um, it killed thousands of people. And then when his lab went away, uh, all those people, those people stopped dying. It was a, it was the, the exact example of, of uh, where supply reduction uh, equals uh, very, very graphically equals harm reduction. And, um, and I think that, that that is a lesson that we, we ought to continue to understand that, um, that we, both the country of Mexico and us, have done very, very little in a binational collaborative way to, um, to defeat this. And, and, and because of that, the supplies have grown so catastrophic. Uh, in Mexico, of course, there's a gross corruption. Um, I lived down in Mexico for 10 years as a reporter. My first two books, in fact, are about Mexico, um, uh, which are all available. People can see them online uh, on Amazon and whatever. And uh, I lived down there 10 years. And so I don't have really any rose-colored glasses through which I view Mexico. Uh, love the country, but there's a lot, a lot of problems. On the other hand, we too um, have encouraged uh, the impunity with which those traffickers pr produce such catastrophic quantities of dope uh, by the guns that are smuggled bought so easily here in the United States and then smuggled south. And this happens constantly. There's a little drip, drip, drip of guns going south every day in, in small amounts, three, five, seven, but over time, it's huge quantities of weapons and and a lot of them are assault weapons and I think that the 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 cartel wars that really kicked off the year after I left Mexico I left in 04 and 05 they really kick off and um and coincidentally or not that is the year after uh which our um our national assault weapon ban lapsed and expired and so 2000 it expired in 2004 and 05 um, and you could sell these guns um, anywhere. And I believe that has, I, maybe that's a coincidence, but I'm cer I certainly believe that there's a, a connection there between the amount of assault weapons in particular and ammunition, obviously, as well, and the, 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 the gross ability of them to, to produce such staggering quantities of dope that they can cover the country with two of, two of these drugs, not just one. You know, this, our season right now that we're, recording for is about um, trauma and secondary yeah. trauma. And I'm curious what you've seen on the impact of first responders, behavioral health providers um, from this current epidemic. Yes, I would say that um, I would say severe and, and uh, withering. Uh, I'm not sure of other uh, ways to describe it, you know. Um, I would say too that in some cities, particularly on the on the West Coast, there is a, a, a it's accompanied by a, a, a real frustration among first responders with the policy of a lot of city and county governments 
uh, that just kind of believe that, uh, well, this is the natural th course of things and people have a right to do drugs and all that kind of stuff. I've found that in, in, among paramedics in particular, uh, people are very upset about, um, about the policies that seem to be encouraging this drug use and, and certainly not penalizing it. There are no consequences is what people have, have told me. Um, and you see this also in, um, I was just spent a lot of time on, on Skid Row and they have, um, uh, uh, they have a, a business improvement district, believe it or not, for the Skid Row area of Los Angeles. Um, and I wrote a story there um, this month, in, well, in October, I should say, um, for um, uh, uh, Los Angeles Magazine about that. And they have a, um, a security detail that's not really police force, but, it, you know, and, and these folks are constantly dealing with, um, you know, horrifying scenes inside tents, pimping and disease and people who have passed out and their tents on fire. And the tents like climbing up the wall of the business it's right next to. And, and all of this is just a, a kind of a withering away of the spirit and, and uh, energies of people. I believe we take far, far too much for granted um, as if they're always going to be there and no matter what happens. And, and I would add to that, as I said, that there is a very, very serious uh, um, frustration would be a, a, a charitable word um, uh, with regard to um, the policies that, that the, the results of which and the, the consequences of which first responders see on the streets every day um, in, in the form, and, and they see this fentanyl, they see methamphetamine creating horrible, horrible um, a mental illness and homelessness and tent encampments and all the rest. And so I would say that that's, it's had, you know, it's been a devastating thing from the folks. And I haven't talked to hundreds of people and, you know, it's a limited number, but I still, you can see, hear the same things uh, over and over when you talk to folks. Mm -hmm. And you've gone to a lot of conferences where you present on this topic. And I yes. would imagine even just understanding the history is really helpful for people because there's perceptions that people may develop um, without that kind of broader picture. Yes. And I would say that, I would say that one of them is that there is one of the misconceptions I think that I, we need to understand is that there is some kind of board of directors down in Mexico uh, ordering up stuff. And that is simply not the case. There's, there are cartels. They're very fearsome and sophisticated. Um, but overall it's a pretty diffuse, industry or ecosystem, you might say, of drugs. Uh, of the division of labor is pretty stark. You have drivers, you have cooks, you have all these different people who are different, doing different work. Um, you do have control on certain things, but you, you don't have the kind of board of directors making policy. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. And that's why we have so much supply and why the prices drop. If there was some control cartel-type control, a la OPEC, say, you know, where you reduce supply to force price up, then we would not be seeing the price drops that we're seeing all across the country for this stuff. You know, it, it, it's, it's really a, a function of a vast free market that has no limitations, and almost no limitations, let's say. They can get all the chemicals they want. They're the consequences, the legal ramifications are uh, minor for most people. Um, and the profits are, are there to be, are there to be made. And if the price drops that because you can, the, the response is not to cut back. The response is to produce even more, you know, so you're making, 
what you used to make with double the product, you know, because you can, because the chemicals are there, because there's a, a, a labor force that's able to do this, and because the law enforcement is not going to be an issue down in, down, in, uh, down in Mexico. And that is how you get to the current situation we have in the country, where we have these drugs covering the country. You have the supply is just unrelenting. And, and it's like, it's not a wave. That's important to understand too. It's a new high tide. It's a new sea level. That's what, it's not a, it's not a wave that comes and goes. This is here and it's everywhere. And the, and the, and the stuff is, is, uh, and the prices, you know, um, uh, reflect that to me at the conferences I go to, um, particularly people who work in treatment or public health or, you know, local government, that kind of thing. There's this misconception that people, that there's some directive from down in Mexico. And I think it's more likely that there are just so many people who see that they can get to make money doing this and they're, they're not infringed upon by law enforcement in the least down there. And so hence you have what, we've, what, we've, what we're dealing with here. I'm really curious, you know, you witness uh, a lot of people's suffering and trauma and you take in their stories um, in order to do your work as a journalist. And does that have a personal impact on you? Um, that's a good question. I, I would say yes, but not as much as you might imagine. Um, one time when I was a, a crime reporter for early on in my days, uh, working in the, in the um, city of Stockton, California, I interviewed and did a long story about the with the, the medical examiner in that town, and he said, "You know, there are times when it affects me, but most of the time I see a body in front of me, it is a an uh, it's a question of how to decipher from the body's evidence what has happened to this person, so that I can tell that story to the uh, family, right? And I view my job." I've come to view my job the same way. Uh, he says, it doesn't help me if I'm like crying and hugging them and, oh, I feel terrible about your death. What they need most is clear answers from me. And to the extent that I'm capable and the evidence shows it, I'm going to try to do that. And I don't break down and cry. I don't feel. And so I would say that that's kind of my feeling as well. I love my work. I love telling stories. I particularly tell, love telling stories that I think are huge that nobody else is telling. And I think that's what the last 10 years of Dreamland book and now The Least of Us is really all about. Um, I have kind of gotten used to dealing with people who are bereaved and uh, who are dealing with very, very uh, uh, traumatic uh, 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 situations uh, that, that no parent should have to go through or no family should have to go through. I know how to deal with them. I know that what they most need to do, even though they may not understand it at that moment is tell the story. I know that this, and they will thank me in the long run. The problem is, I, you know, they don't want to at the moment. Maybe I need to be very, very, very patient, quiet, careful with their, with their feelings. I'm, I've learned how to do this, but I understand that, that my job is um, not to cry and, and, and hug them and, and so on. It's really to tell the story because if I don't, there's probably not too many other people going to do it, you know? So, um, I kind of have thought of myself in the same way as that. It's not that deaths don't affect me or that certain expo exposure to certain situations aren't impactful. 
it's the how you how you then manifest that that the 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 effects of that in your writing and in your report in my writing and my reporting that's what i think is really uh important so i try i try to say this is the job this is and i've got to make sure that i tell the as powerful a story as i can with the evidence with the with the time and the space that i have um as and 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 that will be my that is my job that is the role of the journalist in a civil in a democratic civic society you know and and uh too often i think we we judge reporters based on how well they cry on camera or how well they tut 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 their purse their eyebrows and say oh that's terrible we know that when a thir- three-year-old kid is killed in traffic hiding, that's a bad thing nobody needs to tell me you know, with their pursed eyebrows and they're shaking the, the head. But TV has led us to believe that that in order to show that you're really human, you have to be like weeping and stuff. I don't think so. I think it's it's a it's a question of how well you do the job to tell the story, just the same way as that medical examiner uh, piecing through the uh, you know using the body as as the as the the canvas of evidence uh, did. Well, it sounds like one you're very clear on your purpose, and two yes. that. Um, there's a lot of meaning that comes from giving space to, or really shining a light on these stories. Oh, I, I can't. Oh, that's absolutely true, Heather. I, I would say that some of the most powerful moments of my life are when I give. I've given, been given speeches, right, and family members would come up in tears and hug me. I did a lot of hugging because. In a situation like that, you're not really, I don't really know what to say. And I think most people would just kind of, these are families that have been through horrible, horrible, hellish ordeals. And, and I don't know the words sometimes, even though I'm a reporter sometimes. And so the best thing is simply to hug tight, you know, and mothers, brothers, uh, grandfather. I mean, you know, it's just, it, there's so, uh, so I began to do that as much, and, but it meant a lot to me. Um, that, that I loved your book. It made me understand what had happened to my my wife or my son, you know. Um, and and a, a doctors coming up to me. I changed my practice because of your book. I think I must have heard a dozen doctors at least tell me that, either in person or over email. Um, you know, uh, uh, whole boards and directors of hospitals being given the book to read. Uh, so that happened so many times. I'm, I've lost I've lost count really. Um, you know, it's just like this amazing feeling like you've done the job right. And it begins to, and, and above all, I have to say this, as I said earlier, it really can, I think was a major, played a major role in convincing people to step out of the shadows into the light. And that, it was healthy for them. And that was healthy, healthy for the country too, or their region or wherever. It, it really revived, it, 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 it revived a conversation and and media coverage and storytelling. You, you've got to tell those stories. And if the people who are can best tell those stories are hide, hiding away in their bedrooms crying with a photo album, that doesn't. It, it, it's bad for them, I believe, frankly. But it's also not good for the country. You need those folks out there telling the stories. And with Dreamland, um, that's what I began to see. People coming out. I could see it grow every single year. Um, the power. Uh, that that they then possessed as a group, even though it was not organized, there was no no president, no spokesman, there was no press release, any of that stuff. It was just people from coast to coast coming out of the of the of the of the of the shadows and telling their their stories. And I think a lot of that had to do with Dreamland. And for that, I feel that is what makes me tear up. 
uh, like, wow, this book had that effect and a positive thing. It pushed people to a healthier place, maybe. Um, I, I think so, anyway. Well, and I would imagine that gives you energy to continue doing the work that you do, too. Sure. That's my feeling. Yeah. Um, so you, in the second part of your book, you really talk about community resilience and the power of community. Uh, yeah. Can you share more about that? Well, I began to say that as a journalist, you, you know, the best thing to do as a journalist is not preach, not tell people what you want them to know, show them stories of people doing what you think is important. So, for example, this one story that I could tell is about uh, the guy Bird in um, Muncie, uh, Indiana. Uh, this fellow named Bird, nickname of Bird, um, Mike McKissick was his real name. He lived across in, in the South Muncie neighborhood that had many, uh, two big, enormous transmission factories for a lot of years. And Muncie was a transmission capital of America uh, for a lot of years. And then those plants began to fade classic Rust Belt thing, and they began to lose, and then they were sold a bunch of times, and finally, uh, mid-2000s, they, they, were, they, were, they were closed. The, the city government is thinking, well, you know, we don't have the budget right now, so we have to close the community centers, and one of the community centers was right across from Bird's house, and he had once worked there. So they do that. They cut the budget, they close it, they padlock it and everything, and they think that they've closed the South Muncie Community Center, except Bird keeps the key. Right. And as this neighborhood goes through this very stressful, very tumultuous time with not just job losses, but the, the opioid thing was really taking hold there, too. And all that meth cooks were everywhere. This was pre Mexican meth, basically. And um, Bird every day would just open the, the, the community center, unbeknownst to city fathers. You know, he paid for uh, the toilet paper and the burned out light bulbs and he paid for the. Um, he he did the mowing of the lawn and all that and, and people and, and the kids would play in the community center. The folks, the older folks would play cards. There was a base a, a birthday pl uh, parties and wedding receptions and basketball games on Sunday and all of this because this one guy became kind of a community center unto himself, helping this one neighborhood weather this very, very stressful time. And then in a few years, that the, the budgets got better and they reopened that, that community center and he and then had a full-time job working there until he 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 died a couple of years a couple of years later. But those kinds of that's the kind of story that I just love to tell. You know, it's like uh, uh it's it's the small stuff, it's the daily work, it's this not thinking that you're kind of saving the world by what you do in some noble, virtuous way, and not caring that you're not saving the world, and understanding that the real social change comes in the smallest daily steps forward. And to me, that is a beautiful, powerful, powerful idea that we have gotten away from in the United States because it's so easy to, to demand from everybody, from our politicians or what have you, um, in a very childish way, I think, when we do, it's to demand that they immediately fix the problem. Oh, that didn't work. Well, it must be that you're wasting taxpayer money, that kind of stuff. I just think that, that we need to move far, far away from that, honestly. It's, it, and, and, and so that's the kind of story that I wanted to tell, simply as a way of saying, this is, this is one way of going about it. I'm not telling, I'm not preaching from the, from the pulpit here. I'm just saying these are stories about how people just... And so there's another story of a woman... Uh, a retiree from uh, corporate America who begins to tutor in the jail 
in her in her county and and realizes that first of all people really need tutoring but a lot of the folks you're tutoring have these tattoos her husband dies leaves her a lot of money um and and she's fairly well off anyway and uh, she uses the the life insurance money from her husband to buy a uh laser uh tattoo removal uh a machine and forms a nonprofit and begins to remove people's tattoos small stuff to getting rid of those teardrops or those bizarre sayings on people's foreheads or those you know those those sweat sleeves that go all the way up to your chin and uh hand tattoos and swastikas and whatever and all that you know and it's just in a small way she's doing a little bit to help these people kind of move beyond the 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 being the 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 mired state on the street that they they constantly are finding themselves in and the tattoos help keep them in that's the key thing so it's these kinds of stories to me that that it was like all about daily work. It's all about daily showing up and not worrying if you're not changing the world, because in a small way, you're not, but in a larger sense, in a step back sense, you actually uh, are. And, and with, in my opinion, fewer unintended consequences than those magic bullet solutions that we seem so intent on demanding from our politicians. I love that. It, you know, when you were speaking about giving people hugs, um, and in hearing both of these stories, what strikes me is the power of presence, people showing up, noticing yes. what's going on, and then taking right. action. That's how I view it. Yes. And, 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 and being that, that was the, the devastation of COVID was what deprived us of that. And even people who needed it, people who thought they didn't need it, everybody needed it. We, we saw how essential we are to one another to be, you know, caught up, you know, isolated at home, you know, you needed to be around other people, you needed to be able to see the faces of other, because just seeing the eyes turned out not to be enough to be able to understand meaning. You know, you need to under see the mouth and the nose and how all of that moves. We're very, very good. Human beings are ex exceptionally good at, at, at deriving meaning from the smallest little twitch of an eyebrow or or a uh, um, or or a, a forehead or a or a lip or or the nose, you know, or the scrunching of the eyes. We know what all those mean, and when you can't see that, it's extraordinarily difficult to understand what people are saying. You know, the, the interesting thing is we now live in a in a time when we are supposedly more connected than ever. But really, that connectivity through social media is really prehistoric. It's it's without any nuance it's when people didn't know how to speak or didn't know how to speak in a, in the in the more nuanced way that we know how you're you're only getting like very blunt instrument uh communication and that's why it's misunderstood and so often and led, leads so often to to outrage and anger and ending friendships and all that kind of stuff because there's no tone there's no ability to impart nuance of meaning and so people misunderstand. And I think early Facebook was kind of very much like that. I saw many friendships just ended because people start shouting at each other on Facebook, you know, over stuff that really had they been in the same room, they never would have said anything like that, you know. Um, but this is the prehistoric version of communication, the tone deaf uh, version of, of connection, I should say, that we are in the middle of uh, with, with social media, the way it is, social media apps, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all the rest. Yeah, I'll put a request in for maybe you can highlight some of those pieces. 
I'm, 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 I'm at the moment. I have to tell you, Heather, I'm really uh, interested in, in just like, you know, like taking a nap or something. I mean, right now I'm just. It's been a, a long. I've, I'm, I'm normally a, a breaking news reporter, a crime reporter, and stuff. And, and the last ten years, I've been all about writing two things, uh, two books, and great, and I loved it and all that. But I kind of miss the daily excitement and the getting your name in the paper all the time and that kind of thing. So I've been trying to write magazine stories now and trying to uh, get do the stories that take three months instead of three years, you know, as the books do. Sure, that makes sense. So uh, my final question for you, Sam, is, sure. you know, really your love of storytelling. But how, why do you think that? storytelling is so powerful and why is it so cathartic well i think it is um powerful because we we have this very very powerful urge we evolved our brains well to need it not just think it's a good thing to need this very very powerful urge towards community so much i mean that's why we survived i always say you know the the caveman who marched off to his own drummer that guy broke his leg and no one was there to help him when the cheetah came and ate him. You know what I mean? So we, we evolved from people who understood that you were, we were better together. And I think through human history, we have always understood that. As messy as human relations always are and as conflictive as they frequently are and as tense and as you know warlike sometimes, we have always, always needed um, community. And, one, and there are many ways in which that is expressed eating together, music, playing music together. But storytelling is absolutely one. We have always needed stories from cavemen, again, to Homer, to um, uh, sitting around the fire in some parts of Africa, to Shakespeare, to Breaking Bad and The Wire on TV. These are It's all about telling stories about ourselves and about others. And through st storytelling, I don't think there's there's any more powerful way of developing empathy for others. That's, uh, uh, we have always needed story. Now, those stories can take various forms, uh, told by the person themselves, told in the newspaper, told in a, a book, a novel, a, a fictional account, or whatever. There's a million different ways. It's told on, written on walls, whatever. But we need, we need that. It's not that community is a good thing. It's not that storytelling is a good We need it. It, 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 it satisfies something deep inside uh, our psyche. And, and, and I think, um, and I've come to realize that as I've been a reporter, I wouldn't have thought this, say, 10, 15 years ago, but I've come to realize how essential all that is and that that, that is the way we come to understand each other and come to understand like empathy for other human beings. It's very, very important to do that. And so that has been my approach. Other people have other approaches, preachers, public health. Paramedics, they have their own roles and they are beautiful at them. And I don't think I'd be very good at those. I, 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 I just want to be a storyteller. That's all uh, I really want to do. But I do believe now, uh, after many years of this, that, that it, it does satisfy something fundamental. And our great, great crime, I guess, against ourselves is that in the United States, we decided we didn't need any of that. You know, we could be all on our own. We could. 
be in our homes and on our cars and not around other people. Because yeah, being around other people are messy. We were so prosperous that we actually didn't need anybody. We our food was provided for us at the grocery store. Our entertainment was in our house. You know, we didn't need other other people. We thought. And that is a very, very dangerous idea for human beings because we absolutely have need and do need uh, other, other, other people. We just, last 40 years, as I say, I think, we have just kind of gradually decided that we didn't, because it's so messy, it costs more in tax money. We've decided to defund things that, that bring us together. Um, uh, we've built cities that are really designed to keep us lonely and suburbs, you know, sidewalks and places where no one sees one another and all that kind of stuff just drives me, me nuts, a, lo a lot of that stuff. And so all of that is really, in my view, um, related to this, this desire for community and storytelling is just an, a, an essential outgrowth of that. It also strikes me that um, storytelling is a way to make meaning of these traumatic experiences that people have. Um, in a pretty powerful way. Yes, and I think that that is, that, absolutely, absolutely. And that is why, in my opinion, um, it's so healthy for people to come out of the shadows into the light, as I've been saying. They are telling stories that were bottled up inside them. Stories of grief, stories of, of um, you know, love destroyed, uh, uh, trust betrayed, stories, uh, stories of deep, deep regret. Um, stories of, uh, of how wonderful their kids may have been at one point and, you know, this kind of thing. There's, there's all these stories that, that really allow um, you to feel, to, to get, when, when, they, when they're told, they kind of like take some of the pain away. It seems, it seems to me in many cases, I won't want to generalize too much, of course, but it, that's how it seems, seems to me. But I do think that when, when you tell those stories, other people learn from them. Other people develop um, empathy, understand your story better. When they might have just dismissed uh, that person you're talking about, had they seen them on the street, now they understand the, a little bit more the fullness of that person's story. And that is another reason why storytelling is so, so important and why I love doing it. Well, thank you for being here today. It's really fun to talk with you and hear about your work and thank you for the work that you do it is so important well it's my pleasure i really appreciate your interest thanks so much for, for sparing some time thank you for listening to cassette conversations your resource for exploring behavioral health topics. We hope you found today's conversation timely and meaningful. Please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you want to learn more, visit us at our blog at cassatondemand.org. Cassette Podcast Network. This podcast has been brought to you by the Cassette Podcast Network, located within the Center for the Application of Substance Abuse Technologies at the University of Nevada, Reno. For more podcasts, information, and resources, visit cassette.org.